Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. What's your idea of using tech for good? What about medical virtual reality? On today's podcast, I have Mike Waskolowski. He is a PhD and has been leading highly performing teams in science, innovation, and technology development for over a decade. He is an entrepreneur, multidisciplinary researcher, and passionate the advocate use of concept for using tech for good. He is a co-founder and CEO of Luxonic Technologies, and he leads a growing team of innovators, medical professionals, and healthcare executives that share the common mission to improve global access to healthcare through immersive technologies. Their goal is to empower the healthcare industry, providing affordable, easily distributed, and immersive tools that improve medical education, hands-on training, virtual healthcare delivery. And in 2020, Luxonic was named one of the top 20 most innovative early stage companies in Canada by the Canadian Innovation Exchange. So without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Mike. Hey! How's it going? Good, man. It's good. I am uh, excited to wrap with you. I know we were both we were both talking here recently about getting hit up with the COVID and oh, yeah. uh, and recovering from it. Mine from the conference, you from, you were out and about. Was that what's going on or? Yeah, yeah, we were doing, I was doing an East Coast road show. So lots mm -hmm. of demos, finally uh, getting headsets on people's heads. So, yeah. you know, yeah. in, in our, in our business, it's, uh, it's important to actually have people try VR as opposed to just, you know, looking at videos on a 2D screen. So, so are you now frowned upon licking headsets? Is that no, no longer a thing that you guys do or? Yeah, we try not to lick them so much. Um, <laughs> sometimes you just can't. can't <laughs> I actually got to try a technology at this, uh, at the conference that was this smell of vision. Oh, yeah. Was, it's got the nose thingy here. Yep. Um, and it's gotten better. It's gotten better. Before it just felt like they yeah. stuck a pine cone up your nose. Right. As, I, as like, I hear, smell this. But this one actually had a, a range where I could smell it lightly here and be more oh, aggressive. Yeah. So that was actually pretty neat. Oh, that's uh, cool. Being able to be able to do it, um, even though I do make fun of it, um, yeah. viciously. Um, <laughs> the the te te technology's gotten pretty good um, along the ways and days. I mean, Absolutely. but but really, I mean, you know. From looking at your, you know, your background things. I mean, you're looking at virtual reality in terms of the medical industry. It's a, it's a really good industry for use cases, other than just like, you know, what's a gimmick versus right. what is something that actually adds value. And you know, I'd love to learn kind of a little bit about your journey in providing real value um, sure. for the medical industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that we focus on quite a bit in our. Um, you know, in our company. Um, the last thing we want is for this technology to sit on a shelf because, mm -hmm. you know, hey, it's cool, it's novel, people want to look at the metaverse, and then there's no actual value or not solving any problems. Um, so re we really focus on identifying real-world problems in healthcare and how we can use the technology to solve those problems um, versus starting with the technology and trying to fit them into a problem space. Um, so yeah, my background um, is in physics and medical imaging. I've been around radiology my entire life. Uh, my father was a retired, is now a retired specialist in nuclear medicine. So I've been around radiology for a long time um, and then went through my academic career, um, did a PhD in physics and then did a postdoc in medical imaging. Uh, became an adjunct professor in medical imaging and was around radiologists, was around specialists in nuclear medicine, and started to hear over and over some of the problems that they're facing in their day-to-day -day work. And uh, one of them was really limited access to their workflow. So as a radiologist, um, you work in an office within the hospital. Um, you have a very specific setup in that office. And in fact, that entire office um, is kind of a complex workflow tool. Everything from the lighting in the office um, all the way through to the configuration of the monitors, the workstation, everything is important for a radiologist to do their work. So um, access to that workflow is an issue. You can only really be in the hospital to do that work. Um, and that's kind of confining for radiologists, um, especially during COVID. A lot of them wanted to work 
outside of the hospital. Um, so being able to work remotely is a key issue for, for radiologists. And then, you know, in the course of their day, they're using half a dozen to a dozen software programs um, that have sort of been kludged together um, to work and to perform their actual work. Um, so an academic radiologist might be doing diagnostic work uh, at one point, and then they're doing teaching or they're doing um, 3D visualization or machine learning research um, all within the same day. And so that software ecosystem is pretty fractured as well. So that's what led us to start thinking about how we could use virtual reality um, to unify that workflow and be able to provide access to that workflow where normally you wouldn't have it. So mm -hmm. with our first product, Sievert, we really created a digital twin of that entire workflow. Mm. And so when you're talking about the digital twin and you're looking in terms of radiology, what you're saying is that typically speaking, uh, a radiologist is someone who is has a workflow set up inside of their medical facility. They can be able to then look at the medical imagery of these, of, you know, uh, uh, an arm, a head, a skull, or whatever, insert a part of the human body. Uh, and what you're saying is with the virtual reality headset, they can then put on a VR headset. It will simulate the medical environment that they're in, including the, the imaging scan tool, the ability to actually see is that am I am I saying is that correctly? Is that and, and yeah. so the, the biggest benefit is the remote work uh, capacity being able to work from their house, or what is the what is the major benefit of using VR for the situation? Yeah, absolutely. So the the digital twin is really important. So basically, taking everything that they need. So image review, like you said. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever gotten an X-ray or an ultrasound, that digital data starts at the X-ray machine and then passes through a whole bunch of complex hospital system and ends up in that radiology reading room, that office. It's displayed on multiple screens typically because a radiologist isn't just using one screen. They're looking at past data from a patient, for example. So they may be looking at the first X-ray of a broken arm. And then they're looking at how that arm has progressed in terms of healing. They'll look at multiple scans at the same time, multiple pieces of information. So it's really like a big setup. Um, so the big value of doing it in VR is it's less expensive. So setting up one of those rooms just for the equipment alone is about $30,000. Um, it can be more, it can be less, but the setup is expensive. Um, it's complex. It takes up a lot of space in the clinical setting. Um, and really, you can only access it in the clinical setting. So with VR, we've taken all of that created a digital twin, a copy of that entire environment, all of the tools that radiologists need to do their work in a portable VR headset. So mm -hmm. now they can do their work anywhere. There's an internet connection. It's a lot less expensive than setting up all of that hardware because we've virtualized everything. And then we've also consolidated all of those different software programs that they would normally need, you know, six or seven different programs to use. We've consolidated all into one seamless platform in VR. So we're also creating efficiency and saving money that way. Got it. Okay. So then, um, looking at it from that perspective, is it are they are they looking at two D slices or is it vol volumetric data of the three D scan? Like, what is it? How are they? How is the the viewing of the system working? Yeah, traditionally, you know, if you get a CT scan, it's a bunch of two D slices sort of stacked mm -hmm. in the Z direction. Um, so we replicate that traditional workflow, but we also have the ability to actually do a quick volumetric reconstruction. So instead of looking at a stack, now you're looking at uh, you know, an actual body. Mm -hmm. um, now, radiologists will tell you, a lot of experienced radiologists will tell you that they don't necessarily need that volume because they do all that conversion in their head. But certainly, less experienced radiologists, they appreciate being able to look at that volume. And then one of the other really key aspects of what we've built is the ability for multiple users to be in the same space at the same time within the virtual realm. That's really important for interprofessional collaboration. Um, medical imaging is used across the healthcare system, not just by radiologists. So a surgeon really loves to have that 3D volume in front of them, or an oncologist collaborating with a radiologist they want to be able to look at the volume. They want to be able to look at the medical images simultaneously and do so in a collaborative environment now 
for the first time, really, we're unlocking that ability for them to do that sort of collaboration mm -hmm. um, in VR. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it's interesting when you talk about the fact that the, the more experienced ones go, I don't need the 3D volumetric. I can do all that in my head, yeah. um, which brings up one of the major key issues in the medical space, which is this uh, senior uh, senior level professionals in the space generally uh, don't like to adapt to new technologies. Right. Um, and so there's uh, uh, various things there. Can you talk to me about some of what I would call the threshold guardians with overcoming people's tendency to do what they know uh, versus uh, adopting to better systems? Absolutely. So um, you're, you're right. There's an adoption curve in medicine um, for new technologies. And the way in which we try and address that um, is, you know, sort of threefold. So first of all, we work with radiologists when we're building our systems. So we start off from the radiology perspective. We have RADs who are giving us feedback throughout the system, uh, throughout the, the entire process of developing our software. Um, so we work with RADs. We've done a lot of work to um, simulate the traditional environment in VR. So basically, we've when we say we've created a digital twin, when someone puts on a VR headset, it will be a very familiar space. So they have the typical sort of monitor setup. They have all the features that they would normally have in their reading room. So trying to reduce or bend that adoption curve a little bit. Um, and then the third thing we do is we sort of um, we start to implement some of the more interesting pieces um, uh, from sort of the VR realm slowly and with early adopters. So, you know, we we work with our early adopters to test um, all of the new features we develop and slowly start to introduce changes, but also making sure that we we keep the option to sort of have that traditional workflow as the standard, as the mm -hmm. starting point, um, and give the user the ability to sort of start diving into some of the more, I think, interesting aspects of virtual reality um, slowly. Mm. So you kind of trickle feed this innovation. You know, one, you get buy-in exactly. from, from actually having them come in the beginnings and say, hey, well, this is, you know, x-ray ideologists said that they wanted the button to be blue because the button's always blue so therefore we're going to make right. the button blue then you're looking at the other thing and saying hey you can be completely like you know you just put on the headset and it's going to be just like you're sitting inside your medical facility and it's going to be what you know and then you can kind of you know toggle on or off that that type of innovation so that they can exactly. kind of ease into it that's okay that's awesome you you're looking at and you talk about the thing about how do we know the difference between something that's a gimmick versus something that's real? And then you talked about having background in radiology. Um, are there any other areas that you've looked at? And and you know, how do you determine? Oh, this is this is something to pursue because this is actually a real value add, or versus this is just a kind of a you know, we're going to call ourselves the metaverse of X because metaverse is hot right now. So therefore, right, right now, the metaverse of X. Um, you know, how do you how do you look at making these decisions um, yeah. for value adds on the next the next thing on your product roadmap? Yeah, fantastic question. So, you know, again, uh, all of us have expertise um, in healthcare um, in one way or another. So our entire team is comprised, our leadership team is comprised of, you know, either academics in radiology or healthcare, practicing physicians, um, former executives from the healthcare industry, um, so all of us have that background as a starting point. I think that's really that's really important when you're doing anything in healthcare. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of companies that um, you know in VR who have great ideas um, and they want to help people ultimately, and so they start creating applications, but they don't really understand the healthcare industry. And um, unfortunately, what ends up happening typically, is if you don't understand the healthcare industry going in, you may build something and then you realize that at the end, after you spend a lot of time building it, hey, we need um, this ball is under you know regulatory approval by the FDA, and we haven't even thought about that, and now we have no money and we built something and there's no way for us to get FDA approval. So, 
you know, there's, it's important, I think, to go in with a baseline understanding of the healthcare industry and then work with experts in the field, whichever field you're in, get good advisors, um, get people who are working day to day in the field that you're trying to transform um, and talk to them constantly, get feedback from them. You know, we have users, um, not, not to say that all of our features are driven by our users. You know, we have, uh, like I said, the background that allows us to sort of distinguish which features are nice to have versus things that have to have to be built. Um, but definitely get your users to test and give you feedback um, and get a good core of advisors um, in whatever field you're looking to build. Got it. And, you know, I was, I was looking at your team and there's actually somebody I had on the podcast um, before, Dr. Uh, Shauna Pandya. Yeah. Um, and and so uh, do you have some experience of things you want to talk about doing work um, with uh, an astronaut or a, um, uh, yeah. what, what is that? What does that look like in that area? Uh, that seems like a very interesting, extreme place to try to do medical work in. Absolutely. And in fact, the way we met Shauna, um, she was testing some of, she was actually testing Sievert in an underwater research facility off the coast of Florida. Um, <laughs> so we were introduced through a mutual colleague and then, um, yeah, she's a, she's a firecracker. She's an amazing individual. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think testing Sievert in that type of an extreme environment was really, was really informative for us because ultimately we want, you know, the whole goal with, with our technology is to try and improve access to healthcare in areas where we really need improvement. Um, and remote, rural, extreme environments, those are areas that work really well with our type of technology because um, resources are really tight. And you may not have a full-fledged radiology facility. Um, you may only have a portable ultrasound, but with Sievert, um, you basically have a, um, you know, a portable clinic in a backpack. So testing in these sort of extreme environments is really important. Um, and there's no more extreme environment than space. You know, you have a resource limited environment. Um, you have basically no help um, once you get outside of Earth's orbit. So really testing and building for the most extreme environment makes it easier for us then to integrate into those environments that are a little less extreme um, on Earth. And I think there's a there's a really good translation between space medicine and and remote and rural medicine in uh, you know on the planet. So um, so we do see value in sort of working in both of those environments. I mean that's pretty remote yeah. <laughs> being in space, you know, or under underwater facility. Uh, yeah. There's like it, it's very very limited uh, in what you can do and get away. You're like, oh, oops, I for, yeah. I, I forgot a Phillips screwdriver oh no well yeah yeah Yeah, what are we gonna do exactly you gotta solve problems so you know i think um building for that environment and making things work in that type of environment um means that when we walk into you know an environment in rural canada or in rural kansas um you know we're already sort of prepared for that resource limited environment Yeah, and I mean, it makes sense if you can do it there, backing up is easier. You know, it's like the, the whole people going to Mars and stuff. It's like, well, bring everything you need. Yeah. Uh, bring everything. We're not going to turn this car around. Yeah, exactly. We're not turning this ship around. You better got. It. You better get it all. Yeah, whatever you need for four years, you better bring it with you. So, yeah. you <laughs> when you're looking at the like going into rural areas and and mm-hmm. serving populations and doing these types of things. You know, besides the um, one of the guardians being threshold guardians being people that the adaption uh, adoption of people that are more senior slow to adopt. What are mm-hmm. some of the other what I call threshold guardians? What are the other barriers you've seen that may have been unexpected as you've been trying to get into the space? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, there's always in the early days there were always questions about the technology itself. Um, you know, for radiology, obviously. Um, you need a certain standard of a certain quality of image display. 
Um, you know, that's governed by the American College of Radiology, by the FDA or by Health Canada in Canada. But, um, you know, so there were a lot of questions about the technology itself. And the interesting thing is over the last year or so, for better or worse, the whole metaverse thing um, has certainly put um, immersive technologies at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, and so we get a lot fewer questions about the technology nowadays, which I've found really interesting. Um, and that sort of started the same time when um, a lot of the a lot of the hype was happening about the metaverse. Mm. Um, you know, so that certainly is still one of the areas where we we do have to do some education. Um, you know, the reality is that. Uh, a lot of our consumer-based headsets are meeting or exceeding the standards that are required for medical imaging. Uh, and then our a lot of the enterprise headsets that are on the market, you know, far exceed the, the quality standards for uh, required by, you know, the American College of Radiology or by the FDA. So um, that's been a barrier. Um, certainly, even though the cost of VR is significantly lower than the more traditional um, systems, cost is always an issue, especially if we're looking at low resource economies or um, you know, developing countries. Uh, but I think <clears throat> we really have an opportunity to sort of skip a generation in a lot of countries, skip a generation of technology. So if we see what's happened in Africa, for example, with um, completely sort of skipping the rotary phone and going straight to cell phones in a lot of areas in developing countries, I think we have an opportunity to do something similar in radiology where you could, where, where you don't have any resources now, instead of going to the standard in North America, we can skip and start using immersive technologies because there's a big value add there, um, especially when it comes to collaboration and sharing of resources globally, um, you know, sharing of, of information globally within that virtual radiology suite. Um, we've got a really cool project happening right now with Wake Forest Baptist in North Carolina and Ecuador. So we're actually connecting radiologists from North Carolina to radiologists in Ecuador, and they're doing interprofessional consults within the virtual space um, in Seabird. And the reason they're doing that is because the traditional way that they would try and collaborate, they would literally be taking pictures of, you know, their screen in Ecuador and trying to FaceTime on their phone with their colleague at Wake Forest. And there wasn't really a good system before Siebert came along to really replicate their traditional workflow and connect them in a way that's meaningful and more efficient. So um, we're seeing more and more of that. And I think there's a big opportunity for us to be able to help a lot of people and connect resources where they haven't been connected before. Mm. Yeah, there's that skipping of the generations of technologies that is a huge, I mean, I mean, I've been in virtual reality for geez, almost 10 years now. And, yeah. and to watch like people come across the Quest 2 headset <laughs> and you're like, man, like you don't know. Exactly. Like, uh, this is cool. I can get this on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. You get it. It's three hundred bucks. You get your house yeah. in two days. Congratulations. I had, exactly. a, I, had a, I had a beg a friend around the corner down the street who had like the CV, you know, CV one or something like that. Yeah. And like, he's like, oh my god, you got the new headset. Like, it's oh, so, it's, it's, it's so, it's yeah. so amazing now. You know, do you, have, do you have any thoughts around? You know, because I know it's like you're part of Oculus Start, but you also uh, I know you, Pico is one of your partners, I believe. Yeah. is like have you have you you know have you thought about any thoughts around the pico 3 and bite dance owning that bite dance versus yeah. oculus and what that looks like do you have any any thoughts around the lands that the hardware landscape like that absolutely well i, I will tell you so i uh, i'm a little older than i look maybe so i was around during the first consumer wave of vr so i got to try vr i think back in 91 at the base uh -huh. of the cn tower um back when it was you know a massive undertaking and uh, and you know the graphics were not so good um and to see the progress from the early 90s to what we have now is yeah. just it's 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 a it's amazing it's mind-blowing really the technology and how far it's come um you know for healthcare it's we're in a tricky spot um privacy concerns are very 
top of mind for a lot of healthcare professionals um, and for a lot of healthcare administrators. So we have to deal with privacy concerns, security concerns, um, everything we have to do is encrypted and follow, follows HIPAA in the US and PIPIDA in, the, in Canada for you know, data privacy security. So it can be tricky dealing with consumer headsets. Um, we often get asked about, you know, can, hey, can I just use an Oculus? Um, and, you know, typically for, depending on the application, we will have some challenges using the Oculus or, or the, the Pico, um, depending on what, what type of institution we're working with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other option that, uh, and one of our other partners is HTC. Um, you know, HTC doesn't necessarily have some of the baggage associated with some of the other um, manufacturers, but we certainly have partnerships with all manufacturers and it will really depend on which type of client we're working with. Um, you know, whether we're using a Pico or an HTC Vive 3 or uh, the Quest. Got it. So, uh part of the answers that you have there is just bending up on, okay, what does the client want? How much do they care about privacy versus how much do they care about cost? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's the main question. Oculus subsidizes some of that. Hey, I got a, you get a huge discount. If you just give me your yeah. Facebook login, just yeah. give me your Facebook login, we'll, uh, we'll get to let everything slide. Exactly. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because from what I've heard, the next generation of Oculus headsets, um are going to be more expensive so they're not going to be as subsidized and uh, i think they are separating the facebook account from the meta or the meta account i guess um you know so i think that they there are going to be some changes happening um you know we we um we don't hear as much um about privacy with with you know bike dance and with um with pico Certainly Pico has been involved in enterprise in Europe quite extensively over the years. Um, and we do have a good relationship with those guys um, and, and HTC as well. So, you know, there, right now there are only really three options for all-in-ones and we work with all of them. Um, and to your point, it does have to do with, with cost and privacy issues depending on, on who we work with on, on which client. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I was talking to some dudes over at HTC and they're like, <clears throat> we can't complete with Oculus prices because they sell it at a loss, yeah. right? And and they're like, you know, but it's, it's also because they've been able to make a billion dollar marketplace yeah. Oculus can do, and they also have billions of dollars in incoming versus HTC is a hardware provider yeah. and they have hardware exactly. and that's what they got. They can't offload it, right? So it's just an interesting uh, place, but then you don't, you don't want to give the privacy, even though ByteDance is owned by TikTok and TikTok yep. is notorious for hoovering up your data. Uh, but, uh, and they just got bought by ByteDance. So you're looking at, well, but it's like, it's like that, um, hasn't really made its way into our consciousness as much as yeah. Facebook. We think Facebook privacy, we don't think about China owned TikTok privacy. Exactly. It's, just, it's just as major. It's just not as, um, yeah. Doesn't have that stink that Facebook yeah. stink. Well, I think you know we we have to make sure that everything we're doing is secure um, and private in a lot of ways. So you know if 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 it comes down to it, you know we um, we need to understand everything that's happening on the headset and all of the all of the biometrics that are being collected, everything that's being collected by the headset and where it goes, we need to sort of know. Um, and we need to um, we need to account for that. If, uh, if there's no way to disable those things, um, you know, then, then we're sort of in a tight spot. So that'll tell you who we usually work with. Oh yeah, in terms of that HIPAA compliance, are you HIPAA yeah. compliant, yeah? Is that what yeah. you do? Yeah, 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 Got yeah, it. exactly, yeah. Yeah. Can you please, yeah. Can you talk about like a couple of these like unforeseen issues that you're like, Oh, I just need to build an application that people want inside the medical industry. And then I just give it to them and then everything's great. Right. What are the, what are the unforeseen hurdles that people don't account for? Yeah. So, so building trust, um, you need to, you know, selling into the healthcare industry, it's still very much based on trust and small companies, startups, um, you know, they're an unknown quantity. 
Um, and if you're if if day in and day out your job is to save lives, it's very challenging to work with a company that doesn't have a track record that hasn't built trust with you. So you know there are a few ways that we can build trust. Obviously, um, doing what we say and saying what we do uh, is one. So you know making sure that our products do what we say they do and in the way that they are supposed to. Um, we have to integrate with the existing medical informatics systems out there. So not only do we have to, you know, take in medical images and display them in a way that um, is comparable to what a radiologist would normally do on their setup, but we also need to integrate with a whole bunch of other software systems. And to be able to do that, we need to really understand healthcare. So again, building that trust, understanding where the pain points are, um, addressing those pain points. Uh, that's something that I think a lot of companies don't necessarily understand when they when they go into healthcare or if they're interested in healthcare. Um, does your does your application require FDA approval? Um, you know, is it a regulated medical device? So, for certain parts of Siebert, Siebert's fairly modular. Um, so, you know, our medical education module doesn't require FDA approval, but our diagnostic module does. Right. So you need to basically have FDA approval to be able to say, yes, this application, you know, meets a certain set of guidelines and we have quality assurance. We have risk management systems in place. Everything you would need for a regular medical device has to be in place for an application that's, you know, that's regulated. Um, so getting to that point, understanding what you need, if you are going to be a regulated device, that that's a huge challenge. Um, and, oh, there was one other thing that I wanted to mention around those lines. Um, it'll come to me, but uh, those are, those are some big ones. Oh, a couple, a couple questions around that. So one of them being is in terms of building trust, what yeah. do you think is like, in terms of like, um, these, you know, small studios that want to get into the medical field, what do you think is the, 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 the life cycle? How long do you think it takes to actually get, uh, oh, hi, nice to meet you, into like, <laughs> wow, we're actually getting paid to roll this out and actually being integrated in the system. Yep. I don't think people account for how long that really takes. So can you talk to me about like how long that took you to make that happen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the sales cycle in medicine is 12 to 18 months. And that's based on typically on budgets like hospital budgets or yearly um, academic budgets even if you're going to academic uh, medicine mm -hmm. they're yearly budgets so you're looking at at least 12 to 18 months for just your sales cycle that's from you know if you hit the right timing you might be right at the beginning of that cycle um, but it more than likely you're going to be starting a conversation pitching your um, application and then it'll be in the next cycle when the budget can be allocated to actually purchasing and then deploying your application. So it can certainly be a long slog. So prepare for yeah, 12 to 18 months for a sales process um, into enterprise healthcare. Yeah, it, it, it takes a little bit to get in there. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then when you're talking about that, a lot of with the people in the medical space too is that it's very difficult because they want to, in order to allocate a budget, they've got to be able to, you know, uh, uh, rob Peter to pay Paul in the right. space, right? And so you need to be able to say, hey, uh, our thing will save you or make you money uh, yep. because we have this clear ROI. And if you look at X, Y, and Z, then you can see uh, there is very little uh, feelings and emotions that go into the medical decisions. They want yep. to so show me how this is going to save me time, make me money so that I can take from this one budget because I'm taking budgets from somebody. Can you talk yeah. to me about how you actually craft your argument for, for an ROI? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we do a lot of testing with our uh, early stage partners. And in that testing, we are looking for things like, is there speed up? Um, is there improvement in efficiency? Is there cost savings? Um, and we're so we're when we're doing and this actually loops back into one of the things that I did want to talk about when we're doing trials and pilots with institutions, 
we're looking to get all those KPIs through a pilot and identify, um, you know, identify those KPIs. Um, and that's really, we do that through pilots. So um, you can do it theoretically. So you can do, you know, a calculation. Oh, okay, I'm going to save you $25,000 because you're not having to buy a full reading room. Um, you know, so you can do that sort of calculation, but it's always better to have real data from real clients or partners um, to really show that, hey, in this pilot, we saved 20, you know, 20 percent of the time that it would take um, normally to review this scan or to, um, you know, or a rad normally wouldn't have access to their workflow. And so they were able to read additional scans um, that they wouldn't have been able to read uh, if they didn't have access to Sievert. So we're always looking for those types of KPIs with our partners. Um, and so, so establishing partnerships is really important with credible institutions. You may, you may not be making any money on those partnerships. In fact, they're probably going to cost you money, but it's extremely important to get the mass generals, the Cleveland clinics of the world, um, working with you and evaluating your technology. Um, in addition to those sort of, uh, what I would call more administrative KPIs, um, you also need to show the clinical value of your of your application and so you are going to probably have to go through clinical trials of some sort um, you know we've been through them in canada we're doing some of them in the us as well um, so evaluating the clinical efficacy of your application um, if it is a regulated device is really important as well mm. so be prepared to you know for a long sales cycle and lots of evidence gathering and working with academics and you know working with clinical partners uh, before you'll even sell your first um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. a lot of people stay in consumer health versus uh versus enterprise health here yeah so. yeah it takes it takes a very long time and yeah. and i think a lot of people you know oh just, i'm just gonna make something that's gonna be easy and then people are gonna say yes and then you know, it, it takes a lot longer than people expect. One thing you're talking about is creating an FDA approved application. Yeah. Now, I know that can be a slog. Can you talk to me about, walk me through just the timeline with that and yeah. what that looks like for an FDA to, to create an FDA approved medical first rally sure. application? It, it, and it will really depend on the type of device you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, if there is a predicate device, you can go through a 510K pathway, which is a shorter pathway than if there wasn't a predicate device. Um, so because our system is very similar to, you know, it, it has all of the features of a traditional system, but we're just sort of doing it in VR. We make the argument that it's a predicate device, all of those previous features. We, we're going through the 510K process with the FDA now. Um, and so that can take, um, just to prepare for your submission can take three to six months getting your quality manuals in place. So again, because you're a medical device, everything has to be tracked. Everything you're doing, all of your development work, all of your features, everything has to be tracked, has to be, um, go through a quality management and approval process. And then, um, you know, you have to, again, have a risk management um uh a way to manage risk um you go through an iso certification process um and then you go through your fda approval or your health canada authorization um and that process for 510k once you do the submission can take 90 days um so you're looking at probably six to 12 months um just to go through the process with the fda and that's with the 510k pathway if you don't have a predicate device it could be much longer and you may have to do uh, a lot more in terms of clinical trials so again it's not for the faint of heart here to, to be done <laughs> i feel like we're just totally scaring everybody off in this space no, they're do like that. woo they're like oh you're like like they're like, yeah. like oh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make this happen it's gonna be yeah, great yeah. I, I had, I had another guy on a podcast who had like a, he made like a ADHD video game therapeutics for the FDA. And it was 10 years. It took him 10 yeah. years of just yeah. grind. And I just like, woo, the grit <laughs> it takes 
to get yeah. through the whole process. Um, what do you yeah. think is, is your personal, um, you know, you're the CEO, chief executive officer and all that stuff. You know, what do you think is your main superpower with being a part of the company? What do you feel is the biggest thing that you, in terms of value that you bring to the company? Um, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think perseverance is definitely one of them. Um, you know, you, you, you really cannot, um, let yourself get down, uh, because of setbacks, you know, you have to just keep grinding, uh, keep moving, keep the vision going forward. Um, you have to figure out ways to make money, whether that's investment, um, or through, you know, contracts, offer development, like we do, um, you know, we got to keep the lights on. So I think that's one of my superpowers is keeping the lights on in, fa in the face of adversity. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, the thing that I like, I probably like the most about being a CEO is, is the networking aspect. Uh, I love meeting people. I love telling them about the technology and, you know, really being a cheerleader for the team as well because you know this is not something that i could do alone and nor would i want to um surround yourself with smart people um people who know more than you do than you do and and really just um yeah keep grinding away and uh, eventually you may you may not be successful but um certainly if you learn from everything you're doing then i think you're, you're always going to be successful in terms of, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And there's the, there's the, I mean, networking super important, uh, yeah. as a CEO, it seems very like, I think a lot of other people that look at it and go, well, that's great. I just, I just go around and meet people and that's all I need to do to, it's like, it, it's, yeah. there is a, there is a, <clears throat> there is an art and a science and, and in order to keep the lights on, you need to network with people to kind of create those those opportunities and, yeah. and see where conversations go and all that fun stuff. And I think people uh, definitely uh, uh, take that for granted, um, especially when you don't have uh, you haven't had the pressure of trying to keep the lights on, not only just for you, but for a team that's depending yeah. on you to do it. Right. Exactly. And and so what advice would you give to, say, a small startup? They could be in the medical space or they could be in another space. They're a studio, right? XR studio, whatever it might be. Yeah. And you know, they've got a long-term vision. They got, they've got maybe 18-month sales cycles. Maybe it's in this one. Maybe it's in a different space. Maybe they're in, uh, I don't know, DOD space, something like that. Yeah. Another super long sales long. cycle uh, yeah. of things that take time to evolve and roll around. What advice would you give to them for keeping the lights on? Um, learn to identify opportunities when they, when they're in front of you, I think <laughs> sometimes, you know, um, sometimes opportunities come and you have to pass on them because you don't have, you know, you have to stay focused. Um, but there are other times when you'll have an opportunity that might be a little bit adjunct to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not going to divert your course. It's sort of like, you know, um, it'll help you along. So identify those opportunities. Um, when you, yeah, I mean, to your earlier point, when you network with people, try and network with people who can add value to the company. And I don't want it to sound like it's transactional because I don't think the best networking is transactional, but, um, definitely keep in mind that the people that you're networking with, how, how are they going to help you move your company forward? It might be the next contract or they might introduce you to someone who's going to be your next contract. Um, I think that's really important when you're talking to people is always have the business in mind and keeping the lights on in the back of your mind, whenever you're sort of building out your network. Um, how can one person connect you to the next person, connect you to the next person that might be the, you know, the break that you need to keep the lights on. Um, you know, we, we've done it um, with contract software development. So we, you know, we've got a studio and then we use all of the profits from our studio to fund our product development. And that's, that's the road that we took. And partly that was, because um, you know, I needed to prove to myself more than anything else that we could make money in this field. 
right from the beginning, you know. So that was back in 2017. We started doing, you know, immersive medical software contracts and just building small apps and building our expertise as we were building product um, and using all of those things to, to really further our product development. Um, and we've been very fortunate to be able to do that. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everyone. I think, you know, going the investment route out of the gate um, is certainly also a viable option. And if I was starting another startup today, I would probably take that route as opposed to, you know, doing doing everything sort of um, bootstrapping, I guess. Have you have you raised investment? Have you? We just this year we just opened up a small round um, to a group of radiologists and supporters of ours, um, and uh, you know it was really on the back of our product launch and and starting to reward some of the people who have been um, our supporters for several years, and uh, we're we're looking at a larger raise uh, early next year once we once we have uh you know um hit a few more milestones on the yeah. on the product sales side and that's a challenge that you're really going to come across when you talk about this because there you're, there's there is definitely a couple different modalities right so yeah. one way is raise capital out the gate right and then you don't need to think about it and you just kind of build product go yeah uh, but then you're under the the pressure of needing to perform above expectations yeah. for your investors because now you're on that that grind of I've got to outperform these marks so that when I go to raise again, by the next time I hit the phases, I've hit every single tranche I said I'm going to hit, and my company's now more valuable than when you when it was projected. Exactly. 18 months ago, 24 months ago. But the other the other route of what you're talking about is service based company, yep. service work cut, cut off the cut off the profit, aka the fat from the body, and then yeah. use then use that to be able to kind of build your own product in the background, which is a whole yeah. different method. That one then is you now need to feed yourself, but you also have, you have, you know, it's, it's multiple focuses. Now you need to get work, be able to feed yourself, feed the team, fit everybody. And yep. in the background, build that unurgent, but important task of a product in yep. the background, which is never as important as the client work that looms yeah. in front of you that you need to actually get down and knock out. Um, and so there, there's there's pros and cons to each each one of those ones. The challenge yep. that you're talking about, and I want to I want to address this right here, but is <clears throat> you said in, in the past you would have just raised money out the gate and then just gone with it because then you don't have to worry about the how to keep the lights on, how do I do these type of things. You raise the money, you got it ready, set, go. At the same time, you're hesitant to do the big raise right now because, from what I understand. You're saying yeah. that you haven't hit the traction marks to be able to show the investors and say, hey, my company is worth this much because exactly. this is all the things that we've done. And if you start in the beginning, they're going to be like, great. What's your traction? What's your skin in the game? Show me what yeah. you've done. And if you said, well, I haven't <clears throat> done anything and I don't want to do anything because I want your money so I can just focus on the product. It's yeah. a really hard, a hard balance between showing that traction versus taking on that early investment. And so what are your, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. And, and, you know, you're hitting the nail on the head here, um, especially in enterprise healthcare, it's challenging, right? Um, so when we're looking to raise, you already have a smaller pool of investors than you would in consumer health, for example, um, enterprise healthcare, there is a small pool of investors and they want to see, especially for new technology, they want to see traction. Um, you know, so, so it really depends on the field. Um, if you can get to traction and, and I think, so you bring up a, a really interesting point at the different levels that you engage with and the different times you engage with investors, right? So if we were to do it again, you know, we could do friends and family out of the gate like everybody else does. And now you're starting to establish traction with investors. I mean, there are friends and family investors. Then you move on to an angel round traditionally, right? And so you're hitting milestones throughout all of those. They're not necessarily the milestones that a VC is looking for, but you're establishing your traction in hitting all of those milestones in product development. Um, with you know your friends and family, then angel investors, 
And then once you get through your product development phase, start getting a little bit of partnership, start getting some traction um, in terms of uptake, you don't necessarily need a ton of revenue at that point, but you can then start approaching VCs to say, okay, if you're an early stage VC, what do you want to see from us to, um, you know, to, to get a decent valuation effectively as you move into your first, you know, venture round. Um, but you do need to get to a point of some traction and recurring revenue. That's really what VCs are interested in, especially when you're trying to introduce a new technology, like a brand new technology in our case, into a field. They really want to be able to see that people are willing to pay for this and willing to, you know, pay on that recurring cycle. So, um, you know, again, we're fortunate to get to this stage. Um on our own and so we we skipped some of those earlier stages but that could also be detrimental because you haven't established that track record with investors even if they are um, more you know angel investors so it's a balance i don't know it's i love what we do and i love the fact that we're able to balance those two aspects of the business but as we continue to scale our product side um you know either we, we have to make a decision, right? Are we going to spin out our, our, our studio or are we going to, you know, slowly let it pass as we, as we continue to build product? And, you know, we, there's, there's all kinds of fun decisions that you get to make as a CEO <laughs> as you grow a company, right? It's all on you, man. It's all, yeah, it's the, it's the, uh, it, it's just, it's, it's one decision. It's just a life altering company altering decision <laughs> yeah. that, that exactly. it's on you that if it goes well, then congratulations. But if it goes terrible, it's all your fault. And uh, all your friends and family are going to mock you forever because of it. It's okay. No big, no bigs, right? No, no, no no bigs. Looking at that though, you're looking at that from that perspective of, of what investors want, right? The shocking, shocking truth, you know, you know, is, is, you know, I had a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine who, um, he does medical, he does stem cells, doesn't do VR, but he does stem cells. Nice. Went to Y Combinator, went through, graduated, all that fun stuff. And I said, okay, what are the biggest lessons? He's like, he's like, he's like, you know, honestly, he's like, you go through, I climbed this, the, you know, the Mecca of Silicon Valley. I went through the whole thing. I went through the, 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 the rigmarole of everything. And at the end of it, the, what they want is they want a profitable business. Yeah. And then you, and you go right back to that. Okay. Show me your, your MRR, your monthly recurring revenue, right? Yep. What qualifies you for a series A typically is if you're, if you're doing like, you know, was like, uh, you know, a hundred K MR or something like that. There's something, like that, some, yeah. it, it's somewhere around there, you know, where they want you to do a hundred thousand dollars in monthly recurring revenue. And then yep. the VC would be like, Hey man, that's great job. You, you're yeah. able to show that you can do $1.2 million. I'll give you some more money. And exactly. you're like, yeah, but now I now that I have money, I don't need your money. But yeah, but yeah. like, but now I want to give you money because you don't need my money. And now you're yeah. stuck. It is this this cycle of like you know uh, going back and and you know giving advice to your your younger self. I mean, would you would you talk about taking on investment early? Would you take on investment early, or what would you tell what would you tell your younger self to do? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't ever regret any of the yeah decisions that I've made because I've learned a lot from them. What I would say is, you know, I would actually talk to future me um, and say, look, when you're starting your next one, really think about the pathway that you want to be on. Um, Do you want to have that grind of, um, you know, going through the venture cycle? And, And really, to your point, it's all about building your revenue and then scaling, scaling, scaling. And every venture comp- every venture capitalist is looking for that unicorn. They're looking for a company that's going to scale and it's going to scale fast. And, you know, ask yourself, do you want to be on that grind or do you want to take more of an organic route? It's going to take you longer. Um, but in some ways it'll be uh, more fulfilling. Um, and in other ways, it'll be less fulfilling. So really, really think about the pathway that you want to go on for the next five to 10 years is what I would tell my future self. My past self, I'm pretty happy with the decision we made and the reason why I made those decisions. I needed to make those to get to the person I am today, I think. It's very valid. And yeah, and it's nothing like a, if, what's your biggest regret? That's like a, you know, what's your favorite child? You know, it's like, there's a, you're like, you know, I don't, I don't think I want to answer your question. 
that's, that's completely valid and, and fair as, a, as an as an answer. In terms of, of that, you talked about the let's look at in terms of future self, right? You're talking yeah. about one of the things that you have is is, is a mission of, of, you know, making this technology widely available. What is your holy grail? What is your flag in the sand? What is the thing that you're hoping to achieve by the creation of this company and this product? Yeah. Um, you know, my my vision is to really build a global company that is making an impact in healthcare around the world. So we have about 5 billion people on this planet who don't even have access to x-ray or ultrasound, right? 70 to 80% of all of our medical conditions could be diagnosed with x-ray or ultrasound. Um, so ultimately, I want to bring radiology to the world, to those 5 billion people, um, and make really a lasting impact um, on, on, on healthcare and improving healthcare globally. Um, you know, we've got, a, we've got a pathway to get there. Um, obviously, you know, we start with North America, but we're already, we're already starting to look at more developing economies and, and how we can help people in those, in those places. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my flag in the sand. That's where I want to be. I want to, I want to, you know, have Seabird being used around the world, connecting radiologists to patients around the world and really, um, helping those patients and improving healthcare globally. Beautiful. So, if that's the holy grail, right, to have this lasting impact on healthcare, to connect radiologists globally around the world and 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 have this impact and be able to provide healthcare to people that need it the most, what is your dragon? What is the thing that is so difficult to overcome? You don't know if you're necessarily going to be able to overcome it or as your current self. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely... To get there, we need to scale the company. Um, and being a CEO of a 20-person company is completely different than being a CEO of a 150-person company. And so transforming yourself as you continue to grow, sort of firing yourself from from the position that you're in now and then hiring yourself uh, you know, as a, as a different CEO, or even recognizing that you may not be the, and this is, I think, one of the biggest challenges for entrepreneurs, recognizing that you may not be the person that can bring the company to that next level, right? And having to bring in someone who um, has more experience, is able to scale companies or is in your space, is able to do that. So I think that's the biggest, that's the biggest challenge either transforming yourself or recognizing that you got to get out of the way for your company to be successful. And I don't think any CEO, any entrepreneur, any founder um, likes to think about that because we all want to think that we're the person who's going to, and I think we have to, we have to believe in ourselves and our company, but you also have to recognize eventually that you may not be the right person for the job. I'm not saying I'm not. I, I'm <laughs> Uh, VC is going to be bringing up no. Hey, Mike, remember that podcast that you did? Remember that money we just took on? I actually yeah. agree with your past self. This is your past <laughs> exactly. self talking to your future self that's saying you should get out of your own way. So your own we, way. we found a, a guy. He's got a bigger beard than yours. He's got thicker <laughs> glasses. We think he's going to do a better job. No, exactly. That's a yeah. heart that I mean, you want to talk about that? It's that the yeah. belief that you can transform who you are into who you need to be to get you to where you need to go, right? Absolutely. And or the humility of being able to say you know what i am not the yeah. guy i'm gonna exactly. my my exit's here i'm gonna get off the bus you take the keys to the bus it's your time to go drive the bus that's a that's something that, that would just that's a painful and i've had friends yeah. uh uh be relieved of their positions because of uh vcs of that exact same uh, thing yeah. and, and and sometimes it goes well and mm, sometimes some, yeah. sometime it doesn't yeah um it was great it's a hard question, man. It's a, it's, really it's hard, a hard, hard question. Yeah. And, and it's, um, you know, I, I'm definitely the right person right now. And I think I, you have to be right as a founder of a company, you have to have belief in yourself first and foremost, and you have to have belief in what you're doing. 
Um, but yeah, I think sometimes we, especially people who like to build stuff, um, it can be challenging to let go sometimes. And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that you're ever going to face as an entrepreneur is to recognize that you need to get out of the way, but, um, I'm not there yet. So <laughs> cool. Um, this, this has been an awesome podcast. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before you tell them how to get a hold of you and your company? Yeah. Um, we're, you know, we're growing. Um, we're transforming healthcare. We're passionate about this and we're passionate about helping people at the end of the day. That's what drives all of us. I think that are in healthcare. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Luxonic, um, you know, feel free to visit our website, uh, luxonic.ca, L-U-X-S-O-N-I-C.ca. We're also on LinkedIn and Twitter and all of the social media platforms. So you can find us there. Um, we're probably most active on LinkedIn. So if you are on LinkedIn, feel free to drop me a line. Um, love to connect with people and share the vision of uh our vision of the future of radiology um so yeah beautiful beautiful and if anybody found this to be valuable interesting please share it with your friends share it with any medical professionals or anybody in radiology that might find this interesting or valuable uh mike thank you so much for your time i appreciate you coming to the show have a blessed and beautiful day my friend and i'll see you on the other side thanks so much Tom. take care now bye bye thank you for listening to the heroes of reality podcast Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes Quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or, if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.